0: If you've heard of today's guest, there's a good chance you found him on Twitter. His name is Brad Brasseur, and he's a globetrotting humanitarian who's grown his Twitter audience to more than 100,000 followers. That's a really high number for someone whose job is so wonkish. I mean, this is a, a guy getting published in academic journals. He's writing about strategic solutions to global poverty through local education initiatives. This is dense stuff. In other words... You wouldn't think it works on Twitter. But Brad's feed has a different feel to it, which is why it works. He posts a lot of inspirational quotes, photos of the people he's helped in his travels, articles he's published that really seem to resonate with his audience. In short, it's optimistic. And Brad's reaching people who are looking for optimism on Twitter, who are sick of the overwhelming negativity My name is Michael Freeman, and this is How to Make Money Traveling, a podcast by Outpost Travel Media. On today's show, I'm talking with Brad about how he got started in the humanitarian world, how he traveled to more than 80 countries, and how he grew his identity on Twitter along the way. Stay tuned. This podcast is brought to you by Outpost's new travel web series, Tan Your Mind to Thailand. Last summer, we put out a national call – for two unknown travel hosts to send around the country, and we found them. We wound up sending Jess, a singer from Montreal, and Abra, a nutritionist from Northern BC, all across thailand to get a real feel of the country they trekked across northern jungles around chiang mai they snorkeled off the southern beaches of Koh Tao island they met a man who spent his whole life working with remote hill tribes near the burmese border they toured an ancient temple with a buddhist monk there's just so much you've got to watch the show and see it for yourself so check it out at www.tanyourmind.com Follow Outpost Magazine on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to catch all the latest updates. Thanks to our partners in Adventure for helping to make this show possible. That's Cathay Pacific Airways, Osprey Packs, Chaco Footwear, and the Tourism Authority of Thailand. One of the things you have on your resume is that you've traveled independently to 86 countries since uh, 2004, which is obviously incredible. Uh But, what I found more incredible than that is that the dates the dates overlap almost entirely with your bachelor's degrees master's degree and uh working full time it seems like around the world so my question is how did you manage that
1: yeah that's a good question that's a question I get on a lot of job interviews as well about the dates overlapping all the time um I, I mean, since I was, I was 16 years old, all I wanted to do was travel and I kind of focused my university to take courses. Um, for example, courses in other countries as well. So, for example, I did courses in the Czech Republic and the Philippines where I could manage traveling at the same time. Um, I also took a, s- a semester off here and there to, to, you know, go for a three month, four month trip here. And when I was in university, I, um, actually worked at SportCheck, Canadian's largest sports store, Canada's largest sports store and, um, I worked full-time there, um, selling skis and bikes and things like that, and I was able to have good hours from the managers, and I lived at home in Canloops, my hometown in Canloops, British Columbia, Canada, and uh, I was um, able to save money and just really, I worked, I worked the whole time. I never had really a time off besides studying and working on weekends, and uh, it was about five years of that, but I was able to fit my travels in that way.
0: And at that point, what kind of traveling were you doing?
1: So I was backpacking. Um My first trip was with my good friend, friend, and we traveled through um Japan and Asia, Australia, New Zealand. Um, I was actually lucky on my first trip, I came back with more money than I left with because obviously, I got a working visa in Australia and New Zealand, so managed to work while I was there. So that helped out a lot for future trips as well.
0: Cool. And did you have a, at that point, did you realize that uh, international development and travel and different cultures was something you wanted to do long term or were you just kind of feeling it out
1: yeah I think the travels kind of inspired me more to get into it and to, you know, I realized that I needed to get more educated to get further into it and finish my bachelor's and finish my master's to, to fully you know have opportunity to work in that field
0: when it comes to when it comes to the places that you wound up working like in uh uh, ukraine or belgium did you look at the specific countries and say i want to work there and then find a job there or did you just find a place of employment and say you know what it doesn't matter where in the world i go i just want to go somewhere
1: well belgium was a little bit strategic um my last name brasser is belgium roots um i looked at i ended up taking my master's degree in belgium um Brussels is actually this kind of the second largest political city in the world besides Washington, D.C., so it was a good opportunity to take a master's and find employment opportunities in there and do internships in Brussels um, and open up your doors to international organizations. Ukraine was a little more random. I, I, I had traveled briefly to there, but I wanted to just c- kind of get to know the country more, and so it was kind of a fascinating country to me that, that you know, it's not a, a, a normal country for backpackers or people to go to, and uh, that, was, that was a little more random and just sort of happened.
0: So that in that case, you did find the country, you did find Ukraine first, like before I did, yeah. before you worked with the uh, with the the nonprofit uh station
1: there. I actually I got the job to go there, yeah. So I I applied for the job, uh, and then I had to pass a Russian test to get there, and then um, I yeah got hired for the position before I went to Ukraine. Actually, yeah. You had to pass a Russian test to to get the job. Yeah, it was it was it was difficult. It was a few few weeks of st- it was it was a pretty basic test, but I had to speak to a Russian. Uh, russian lady in my hometown and she had to prove me that i had enough russian to go to to eastern ukraine for the position so that was it's interesting did you speak any russian before that very very basics from from friends that i
0: had in brussels (laughs) so you parlayed uh some basic language skills from like having some drinks with friends into a job interview job interview level russian
1: yeah i don't know if i would go as far as job interview but basic russian that i could communicate and kind of survive on my own because the project i was it was community development project and i was alone in the russian community so i needed to at least have some survival methods that i with, with some russian and uh, since then it's evaporated but i'm sure i could get it back in a few weeks but yeah. Um, yeah it's a fascinating language though it's it's yeah they they don't they don't in russian language you don't need to say i am cold you just say i cold so i uh, you, you kind of <laughs> A lot easier to just get straight to the point on a lot of on a lot of things, which I appreciated. Great, and so uh,
0: in all those times there, one um, one of the themes that you're promoting aggressively in your own work is obviously education. Uh, I'm curious to know how you came to focus on that as one of the primary solutions to global inequality.
1: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the Ukraine project. I, I worked in and out of several kind of high schools there, um, working with the children there and, and realized that was a big thing, um, realized kind of how outdated their curriculum was from the Soviet eras. I mean, they ha- I mean, the Soviet era, they had a really good curriculum as well. One of the things that the Soviet was that their education was really good, but you could just see it was outdated now and you could see how was was holding back a lot of kids. Um, and then my next position, I ended up in in Peru, sorry, with another education project. So it kind of just kind of piled on two different continents, and just seeing how educating the kids more, it gave them more opportunities and more jobs, and getting them into private schools helped them out as well. It just sort of came over time.
0: I don't know. So it wasn't something that you were thinking about when you were uh, when you were studying all this in, in university.
1: Yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't an issue that I, that I thought in the university, oh, this is the thing that needs to be done. You know, educating the poor is the biggest thing. It just came from traveling and seeing and experiencing things and working on education programs. And then it just hit me how important it is and how vital it is to help their, as a tool to help the poor to get out of poverty.
0: What were some of the biggest moments of realization uh, that
1: came to you uh, in Ukraine or in, in Peru? Yeah, I mean, you, when you look at a lot of the teachers there, for example, the, the teachers that are trained, they just lack the skills to even be able to teach kids. And you're sitting in classrooms as a guest and you're listening to what they're teaching and you're realizing kind of like they don't even have the education to be able to educate people. And it's just it's it doesn't go anywhere. Right? And same thing as Peru. It's it's just having it's, it's the, educa- the people that are educating the people don't have the education. So how how, how is that ever going to get anywhere? Um, also, cur- curriculum, some of the curriculums you see and some of the lessons you see teaching, for example, I mean, in Peru. Um, these kids in the public schools that are living near Shanty Towns, they can handwrite amazing, incredible. My mom, who was a teacher, um, actually visited my project uh, up, up in Arequipa, and she was amazed with her handwriting because she's a Canadian teacher and she talks with her students, couldn't even come close to handwriting with that. But What kind of what she felt to miss was handwriting's outdated skill. Um, you know, no one really uses it anymore. So that's in the curriculum where maybe they should be focusing more on computer knowledge or other areas um, of education where they kind of was kind of passed by them in you know year 2017.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I read in one of the articles that I thought was interesting um, and totally obvious when you think about it, which is that there's no global universal solution to inequality. It's every region, every country has to look at its own problems and address them in a different way, which is a much uh, uh, less like sexy, more practical solution, I think, but it it does make sense.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of you know NGOs and international organizations try to say, "Oh, this solution worked in in this country many years ago. Let's apply it to this country." But it's not, or even within countries. I mean, you look at Peru. Sixty um, percent of the country is Amazon region. Um, the people in the Amazon have completely different cultures than the people in the other parts of the country, and they learn different things, and they have different traditions and religious beliefs and thing. And so, how could you? Set one curriculum in the desert area of Arequipa and put it in I- Iquitos in the in the Amazon area, so it definitely has to be adaptable and local people have to have an input in their curriculum and not just be told what to do from the national or, or international level yeah okay
0: so uh I wouldn't mind pivoting this conversation right now to talk about uh our good friend Twitter because you uh one of the reasons we know who you are and very likely. Thousands of people, if they are listening to this, know who you are, is because you have nearly a hundred thousand followers on Twitter. And I cannot think of any other independent humanitarian but those kinds of numbers personally. Uh I'm curious to know when you realized that Twitter was your platform of choice.
1: Yeah, good question. I, I really actually didn't start using Twitter till about three and a half years ago. Um I was a little bit behind on it. But then I realized that Twitter is such a unique platform compared to Facebook and, you know, all the other social media platforms in the sense that you're such more personal with your audience. You can reach out to people. You can talk to people directly from the United Nations. They'll talk to you back, politicians. Um, and for me, I just sort of found a way to t- hit the right posts and use it a way to promote my articles and, you know, my focus on education and some of my, my travel photos on there. And it seems like people on Twitter kind of like more positive things i think a lot of people use twitter to voice their displeasure on things but i think if you post more upbeat things and more solutions for problems and be more upbeat people tend to like that a lot more and i think you get a lot more retweets and likes and follows from that
0: yeah i think twitter is all about extreme emotions both hate and love
1: yeah, that's, that's, that's the downfall of Twitter too. You know, I, I'll post something and there, there's always somebody that will try to rip me apart somewhere and it definitely tests your patience sometimes, but uh, there's definitely the Twitter has, has the, the negativity with it too. But
0: So, I, I mean, that, that makes sense. <clears throat> that that makes sense in the Twitterverse, but it still doesn't explain 100,000 followers. Like that's an exceptional number for the kind of work that you're doing. How did you get that many people?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I've tried to post the right stuff and reach out to people and, uh, no, they're all hundred, it's all hundred percent natural. I have, I'm, I'm, I'm a cheap person, so I never, I never pay for anything. Like that. I, I don't have any real explanations. I mean, I know a, a few tricks of, of getting my posts more noticed and posting at the right times, being able to follow the right people that retweet stuff and just different stuff like that, I guess has helped me out.
0: Right. So that sort of segues into that that other element that I was kind of curious about uh, on your Twitter bio, you say you're available for communications and social media consulting, which to to my ear makes it seem, you know, like you're playing it off your own uh, Twitter brand, if I may call it a brand. I mean, it's a Twitter personality, but you know what I mean? Um, You know, it seems very organic, but at the same time there is some calculation there. Like, you know what you're doing,
1: right? Yeah, definitely. I'm obviously a little, a little bit of marketing never hurts too. Um, I think it's something that, as I've kind of advanced my career, I've realized that, you know, my skills are focused on writing and editing. I realize social media is a big aspect to international development career as well. So you're marketing people's ideas and things like I did for my last job. Um, and I realized as I come along too that that's a skill that people people desire as well. So it's always nice to be able to show, prove that you can do it yourself. So when someone wants to hire you, you can say, here's here's the, the proof is in the pudding. You know, uh, here's the evidence. Um but it's it's something that I put yeah I've been looking for in three three months ago I put that on there so I didn't always have that on there but I found it it's 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 a way to to promote to find work as well
0: yeah so how many people have actually reached out and hired
1: you the truth is not a whole lot actually um, I'm currently doing social media for a, a travel agency in um, in Peru and right now that's kind of been my own gig I got on the go but uh, I've had people kind of ask for my CV and that from it as well too but um, yeah it seems like most people. Are actually using Twitter on their phones or the digital devices. And a lot of times your digital devices don't show the profile part that well unless you're using it on the computer. So I find sometimes the bio gets ignored.
0: One of my, I mean, my next question was sort of going to launch off that to be about any sort of uh, private work that you do on the side, because it strikes me as difficult to make a full time living at the kind of work that you do. And I was wondering to what extent you do some. I don't know, call it a side hustle or just like a little bit of work on the side for like in like a, a more corporate, private environment to to compensate for that kind of lifestyle. Like it does that balance exist or are you truly just making most of your money doing your your primary NGO work? And if so, how? Sorry, that was a lot of questions.
1: Yeah, no, no. Yeah. You know for me, the balance that I found is that you have to make your money in spurt. So if I have a good job, I have to kind of concentrate on that and I make my money and then I go through a spurt where I'm doing a lot of the volunteer work. So sometimes it's not happening all at the same time. It goes in, in, in stages, if that makes any sense. For example, I mean, if I'm living in Peru, it's very cheap to live here. Um, if I'm earning money in Canada, I'm earning a lot more money. If I can save it in Canada and I can come to Peru and do that work, I'm going to be able to sustain myself for longer as opposed to trying to come peru and sustain myself on, on the side um uh yes i mean right, right now is a point where um, i'm uh, i you know i was looking for work as well I, I finished my position for about a year and a half where i had a you know a fairly decent paying job in, in peru here which which helps out as well um, unfortunately the funding lost the the project lost funding but um so now i'm kind of just sustaining myself on what i made before and just trying to do more volunteer stuff and promote stuff like that so it just kind of goes in spirits but it's really hard to balance like you said it's very hard to balance at the same time. Um,
0: how how likely is it that you're uh, gonna run out of money and have to go back to Canada for a few months and then go somewhere else after that?
1: No, I, I'm. You know, I've been able to travel a lot, but when I'm not traveling, I am as cheap as they get with my money and as thrifty as possible, and I'm always saving money. I'm always living below my means, no matter where I am and uh, and what I'm making, so that I always have savings to to save myself when I need to. So you no, know, would, that that would never be a situation I would have to face.
0: Peru is obviously very cheap. Um, well, I'm assuming it's one of the reasons, but in general, why have you found yourself sticking around in Peru?
1: Yeah, I mean, the first reason why I came to Peru was to work with the, the NGO in Arequipa, educational children's NGO called who Peru, and um, I think the longer I stayed in Peru, the more that I got drawn to Peru and uh, ended up being recruited to work in Lima and worked for a really good organization, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think Peru offers um, – offers a lot of, a, a good lifestyle, a lot of good opportunities here. And, and the climate's really nice. I, I mean, I've skipped Canadian winter now for quite a few years and I'm happy to do that for more years, although I miss skiing. Um, but I just, the food is some of the best food in the world here. And I just, it's just a place where I travel around the world. And I finally think, you know what, Peru is a good place to, um, to settle down. In. And, and of course I have a long, a long-term girlfriend here too, that helps. Um, so, um, you, you yeah. don't,
0: you don't need to sell me on Peru. Cause I, I actually lived there for five months. Um, What's funny is I actually lived in Arequipa, uh, and that's it. And uh, it's funny because you know, as soon as I saw Hoop on your resume, I was like, "Oh, yeah, everything in Arequipa—if every expat event in Arequipa is done by Hoop." Um, one of the first things that I actually noticed when uh, I, I was there just two two years ago in the winter, doing exactly the kind of snowboarding thing you just really referenced, and uh, when I went. I noticed all the the expat groups on Facebook and the the any sort of trivia night, any sort of open mic. Everything is run by Hoop. It's like it's a dominant force in the expat world there, more than anything else. Um, I was wondering because you you were there near the beginning, um, and and you I think some of your job was actually organizing those kinds of events. So I'm wondering to what extent you shaped that culture.
1: Yeah, um, good question. Yeah, Hoop definitely has come a long ways there. And I think uh, I, two of the co-founders, um, one from Austria named Teresa and the other from Taiwan a Taiwan named Lee are, have really helped shape that NGO in the sense that they're the ones that kind of found the money to hire, you know, full-time staff on, on a local salary when I first came and I was the first one that they hired for communications and development uh, director. And they hired another volunteer director at the same time as me. And they, they raised that money. So I was the first kind of fundraising director to to come there um, and start start and kind of take on from some of the smaller events they had going on in the community and just kind of establish new relationships with some of the local chocolate cafes you must have been the chak Chow chocolate I, I imagine of course um, you, you can't um, yes. you can't escape Chow. and that that's that's that's, a, that's a, it's an empire there now yeah that's a great uh, place where they would you know they started and all obviously a lot of the local hostels and the deja vu and the wild rowers establishing relationships with their um partners there and that was one of my, my big jobs doing there but I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it without them the two co-founders raising the money to get for the positions and then the, the people after me took you know took the things took my position and they did a great job too and I, I've been back a few times and seen the events they have and I keep getting the alerts on Facebook too so I'm always happy to see it, it it's expanding and um, no but I was lucky to be kind of the first one under that position so that was uh, what do you think that,
0: what do you think got you that job
1: well, uh th- when when I got hired, I think I had a lot of different experience working for NGOs and working with children. And I think I was just a good fit cuz I had fundraising experience as well. So, um, my my travels and that I think helped out a lot. I
0: guess the reason I ask is because uh, for a lot of people, you know, they would love to break into the NGO world um and it seems like there are so few opportunities there. Um and I'm wonder- I I guess I'm wondering on their behalf, you know, how how to stand out.
1: Yeah, you know the NGO NGO jobs are very difficult. It's really tough. And Even after you get you get your education, whatever it is a bachelor's degree or a master's, you still have to kind of bite your pride and you need to volunteer. You need to intern, and you basically need to be way overqualified for any position you're going to apply for. And that's kind of how it works. It took me a few years to kind of accept that, and I think a lot of people struggle with that. But you really have to you really have to fight and be overqualified for positions that you get. And that's just unfortunately the there's so much competition um, and such little money NGOs have as well so
0: do you think there's any way that the system could could change is uh, any sort of uh, different route better route
1: <sighs> it, it's tough there's a lot of really I mean for me recommendations to people would be to go through their countries um, volunteer organizations like I know Global Affairs Canada has internship programs that they pay and they put placements um, and also offices of the Peace Corps the USA has um, but if, I, don't, I don't think it's going to change um at all in the future, I think a lot of problems are is there's so many problems with NGOs in, in developing countries that are kind of cover-ups for other money laundering things and that too, so they get a lot of bad rap NGOs. So, um, but I think that's just the way it is in the NGO world, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, you. I've noticed you tend to be an advocate for a lot of smaller NGOs. Um, do you have any particular suggestions into getting, getting inroads with them uh, when it's the bigger ones that tend to be sucking up all the air out of the room?
1: I think the benefit of the smaller NGOs, for example, let's say if you're a volunteer or you just finished your your degree or you want to you just you just finished your university for the summer and you want to volunteer somewhere. A lot of times, if you volunteer with a bigger NGO, they're going to put you in a position that you that you are way over overqualified for, in the sense that you're not going to be able to use the skills that you have for that NGO and help them out properly. Well, the smaller NGOs need help in so many different areas that you can actually use your skills and get a good volunteer experience. You can have something for your CV or your resume that shows you using your skills. And also you can help that NGO a lot more than the bigger NGOs who will just use you as a, you know, someone to carry carry something to, to the project or something. Um, so I find that small NGOs need a lot of help and they have a lot of things for volunteers to offer too. Um, on the downside, obviously, you have to be a little more adventurous a traveler because the bigger NGOs have more organization and, and systems set up for your arrival. That where small NGOs, you got to be a little bit more experience or more more of more adventure to, to go to them sometimes.
0: Would there not be more competition for them as well?
1: Typically not. Typically people are gonna go to the bigger NGOs that have to do the marketing and do the social media and pay for the advertisements they're gonna draw them in.
0: That's interesting. I mean I would think that most people want to do go with the with the the indie grassroots thing around the world, even if they're harder to find.
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think nowadays it's Google world, right? Where, whatever you Google, Peru volunteering and the first ones are going to come up are going to be the ones that you pretty much choose and those ones are going to be the ones that kind of, you know, are the bigger ones.
0: Yeah, fair enough. All right, I've got one last question. Um, because so much of your, your portfolio and, and your LinkedIn and everything seems so focused on, on work and academia and promoting these, these core things, I'm wondering how that's affected your personal life.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think I live. A, I think for me, a happy, successful life for me is always having a balanced life. So working, you know, doing my writings, but also being able to do times to go to the gym and do my sports and keep my eyes on the sports scores and watch sports. So for me, it's just that's my whole life. It's just it, it's balanced, and I can do everything. And it really, I think, I, I think my personal life. Um, maybe the first six years when I was studying my masters and bachelors I didn't have much of a personal life, but as I got into the professional life, I think my my personal life has has been all right as well.
0: So what you're saying is I uh, uh, misconstrued everything I saw online as in fact being your entire existence. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Whoops. All right. Well, uh, well, thanks very much, Brad. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to speak
1: with us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, guys. I appreciate it.
0: This has been a production of Outpost Travel Media. This show is produced and edited by Seth Earle and me, Michael Freeman. Our executive producers are Matt Robinson and Deborah Sanborn. Sound mixing assistance by David Spadavecchia. And our music is by Springtide. Thanks again to Brad for chatting with me. You can find him on Twitter, obviously, at brbressur. You can find a link to that and some of the other stuff we chatted about, as well as all our other podcast episodes at outpostmagazine.com slash podcast. Lastly, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on iTunes or anywhere else. This is our first season, and I would love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review on iTunes while you're there and let me know what you think. Thanks, and see you next time.